0: Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler.
1: Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. This is our second season, and we're excited to continue, and we're excited that you are continuing to join us as we help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and more will meet up with everyday impacts, like allergies and asthma, digestive issues, and gut health cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we talk with experts for today's show on extreme weather events, how they affect our health and wellness, and today we're gonna talk about extreme heat. Now extreme heat events in the United States are already occurring, and they're expected to become more and more common, more severe and longer lasting as our climate continues to change. The definition of extreme heat varies based upon many different factors such as location, weather conditions such as temperature, humidity and cloud cover, and the time of the year. Caused by climate change, extreme heat poses many risks to human health with many of its health impacts already being felt here as well as across the globe. The chances are also increasing that an extreme heat event could happen where you live. That's because the average temperatures are rising, both in the United States and around the world. Globally, the average temperatures has been rising since the beginning of the 20th century, and temperatures are expected to continue to rise through the end of this century. Worldwide, 15 of the 16 warmest years on record have occurred since 2000, with the exception being 1998. And here today to help us understand and unpack some of this is Bob Henson. Bob is a meteorologist and journalist based in Boulder, Colorado. And he's written on weather and climate for the National Center for Atmospheric Research, for Weather Underground, and many, many others. Bob is the author of The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change, and The Rough Guides to Climate Change, as well as Weather on the Air, A History of Broadcast Meteorology. And he's co-author of the introductory textbook, Meteorology Today. And for five years and up until the summer of 2020, Bob co-produced the Category 6 news site for Weather Underground. He is also on the governing body of the American Meteorological Society. Welcome, Bob. We're so glad you could join us today.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Bernice. It's really, really nice to be here and uh, great to be able to talk about this extremely important topic.
1: Bob, we know that weather, of course, is all around us. We can't avoid it even if we want to. And so it impacts us on a daily, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis. It impacts our routines, our plans, and it determines and dictates our interaction with the environment around us. So let start out, tell us what qualifies or how are we defining extreme heat? Give us both the technical definition as well as the layman's version. And also tell us about how that definition may have changed over the years.
2: Those are all great questions, Bernice. And, and I, I think, in, in fact, the lay definition is probably more straightforward. Um, if it feels extreme, it's extreme, right? <laughs> it's, I love that. <laughs> yeah, heat is in the, the, uh, the experience of the beholder. If it feels hot and you're suffering, it's, it's extreme. Now, of course, the, the temperature regimes are way different in, a, in Texas versus, say, Maine or Alberta, Canada um, versus India. So different parts of the world uh, experience heat in different ways. And so uh, there is some subjectivity in heat, but there's also some objectivity in how heat is measured. Uh, And the main ways, and you alluded to this in your introduction, are uh, temperature and moisture. Um, You know, obviously, the higher the temperature, the more uncomfortable you're going to be. But moisture has a big uh, role in this as well. And so that's why uh, some years ago, the National Weather Service came up with uh, the heat index definition. And that's basically a formula that combines the level of of moisture in the air with the, the actual temperature. So with that index, you have um, two kinds of advisories that are generally issued, um, and those are uh, excessive heat warning or a heat advisory, right? But what's interesting is that the different uh, criteria for those uh, vary depending on what part of the country you're in. Uh, for example, in Boston, uh, you could have a heat advisory if it's 95 degrees, or as uh, the heat index, rather. Uh, if you're in Washington, D.C., it needs to be 105 heat index, and if you're in Augusta, Georgia, it needs to be 110. So what that goes to show you is that we become accustomed to the heat wherever we live. So that takes some of the edge off extreme heat. Uh, we we learn to adapt to it wherever we are. Sometimes it's a physical adaptation, such as air conditioning. Uh, sometimes it's our body simply becoming more more acclimated. Uh, That's why heat waves are actually most dangerous uh, early in the summer when we're not quite used to the heat. So all these things, you know, our experience in a given year, uh, where we happen to live, and our own bodies, in fact, uh, relate to how heat is experienced and what we think of as extreme heat.
1: I want to talk a little bit more in depth and connect the dots for our listeners as to exactly how climate change is causing the extreme heat and the changes in extreme heat. Like, why are we talking about extreme heat? Prior to, I suppose, maybe the last 10 years, we didn't really have conversations about extreme heat because we didn't have as many effects. But I have to think, too, that at some point it affects the food system, and that may be when we get to drought, which we're going to talk about drought on a show later on at the end of the year. But if we can now, let us connect those dots for our listeners, though, about climate change and extreme heat.
2: Well, sure. Well, um, first of all, obviously, climate change at its heart is global warming, and we know that the planet as a whole has warmed up a little more than one degree um, Celsius in the last 100 years. That's about uh, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's going on. And then, of course, on the national and state and local levels, we have uh, varying amounts of warming. Uh, Summers have warmed about uh, 2 degrees Fahrenheit in the United States over the last 25 years. Actually, the interesting thing is that uh, climate change tends to warm the cool periods more dramatically than the warm periods, right? So winters are warming more quickly than summers, and nighttime is warming up faster than the daytime. So the, 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 better, the, the silver lining in that is that um, summer days are not warming up quite as quickly as, say, winter nights. So that helps take the edge off this in terms of the, the worst effects, in the, you know, those scorching hot summer days. So unfortunately, it's all warming. It's all going in the wrong direction. All these things do affect how we experience heat, and even a series of muggy nights can be extremely dangerous. Um, In terms of our our evolution of our awareness, there was a a key event in 1995, a heat wave in Chicago that killed more than 700 people over several days. Uh, They literally had to have refrigerated morgues. It was just horrible, horrible. And that raised the nation's awareness that this is a real problem, no, no less than a hurricane or tornado. So the nation started to invest more in... Um, planning for heat, and since then, cities have been a lot better about cooling centers and such. So um, they're, we're responding just in time because the climate is now challenging us, right? If it gets warmer, we're going to be challenging those adaptations that we're developing. I kind of think of it as a race between how quickly can we learn about heat and how to deal with it and how quickly is the climate changing. And so far, we've just been able to keep up uh, the net. Uh, heat rate death has been relatively steady the last 20 years, but in some cities it's gotten worse. And Phoenix is an example of that. Um, so that's that's a real concern, and we're going to have to keep adapting and learning more about how to deal with heat uh, as we as we deal with more of it.
1: Talk to us about what you've seen because you're kind of on that subject already. How you've seen us adapt, and, and how extreme heat has changed how we live and what we do. I think
2: one example is people drink far more water, right? Um, When when I was a kid, people didn't walk around with water bottles regularly, and and now that's just a matter of course. And that's an awareness that has been relatively recent. Um, uh, Cities are are becoming more conscious and planting more trees, uh, which both helps uh, reduce climate change and reduces local temperature because the heat islands in cities is another form of human-caused climate change, right? Right. Uh, It's getting hotter everywhere, but particularly in uh, the concrete canyons of cities.
1: Exactly. And I have to think that here in the U.S. and other countries, it will change the way we build and the materials we use for our buildings like it does perhaps in countries that are closer to the equator. I also noticed it when I lived in South Florida. They deal with different materials in different ways than they do here in Texas. We will come back and continue this very interesting conversation with you right after the break. We've been with Bob Henson talking about extreme heat. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV service. Our other new sponsors are North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, as well as classes, and much, much more with the best Christmas trees in North Texas, we're told. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. And our last sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the green, healthy, and sustainable living authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. This is our show on extreme weather events, specifically talking about extreme heat and how it affects your health and wellness. And we are back with Rob Henson, a climate writer and meteorologist. And he was talking to us about how climate change affects and determines and causes extreme heat. But Rob, if you could talk to us about how do extreme heat weather patterns and the oceans interact i know you've been talking earlier about moisture so i guess it has to have something to do with all of that
2: absolutely the uh, oceans are kind of like a buffer Uh, they they take the edges off both heat and cold Uh, so as the earth uh, you know warms in the summer cools in the winter uh, oceans don't respond as quickly Uh, they absorb some of that heat in the summer and some of that cold in the winter so if you live by the oceans Uh, Your summer is delayed a little bit by a few weeks versus living in the mountains and likewise winter. So as the planet is warming, the oceans are, believe it or not, taking up more than 90% of all that extra heat that's being trapped by uh, fossil fuel gases. (laughs) Most of it's going in the ocean. So uh, that raises some concerns, and one of those is uh, what if the ocean decides to just let some of that heat out, essentially? Uh, What if the rate of uptake of the heat in the ocean decides to change? Uh, it's not really understood why so much goes into the oceans. So it's not fully understood how that balance is set. But uh, one interesting and big factor in that is La Nina and El Nino. Um, you all, I'm sure, heard of those of syndromes that (laughs) tend to last a year or two, and uh, they kind of follow a school year calendar. They intensify in the fall and weaken in the spring.
1: But explain to our listeners again what they are to make sure that we're all talking the same thing. I think I I know, Uh, but I've learned many things I don't.
2: (laughs) Sure will. So they both involve the eastern tropical Pacific, kind of the waters in the tropics off Peru and Ecuador. And when those waters, about the size of the United States, when those heat up, that is El Nino. Uh, When they cool down, which is what's actually happening this fall and winter, that's La Nina. So those those are natural processes. They kind of wax and wane. But when you have an El Nino, it pumps immense amounts of heat into the atmosphere from the ocean. So if we have a record hot year globally, uh, like we've had a few in the last few years, those tend to happen when there's an El Nino going on because that eastern tropical Pacific is pumping all this all this warmth that's being trapped by the oceans, it's just kind of spitting it out into the air. Now, this year into next year, we've got the opposite going on. That area of the Pacific is cooled down, and so we probably will not set a global heat record next year. So that sounds kind of like it's going up and down and up and down, but underneath all that, it's kind of a drumbeat of warmer, 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 right? So think of it like um, two steps forward, one step back, like an El Nino is two steps up the thermometer, and we set a global record high. Then La Nina maybe is one step down. We don't get down to where we were, and then El Nino pumps it up again. And each of those is because the ocean is just putting out a little of all that heat that it's collecting as the planet warms.
1: There's a greenhouse gases trap the yeah. heat. You mentioned something just a moment ago that was interesting, and that is what if the ocean does not absorb that heat?
2: Yeah, well. the funny thing is, it doesn't take that much of a change, because if 90% is going into the ocean, uh, just a little bit of change to that 90% is a big change in what goes into the atmosphere. Um, the, the most likely way that would happen is if an area like the Southern Ocean um, that tends to overturn a lot of water, if that changes and starts you know, putting out um, heat in different parts of the ocean or, or taking up colder air. So, I've I've simplified it and I think mangled it a little bit, but it's the uh, circulation of the oceans around the planet that uh, kind of keeps us in balance with the atmosphere. And so, uh, that could change with climate change, and certainly uh, glacial melt is affecting things too. Um, Now, all these things are not really going to change the big picture that much. Uh, We already know we're in for warming. Uh, Even if we turned off every engine on the planet right now, we're still going to warm some uh, based on what we put in the air.
1: About two weeks ago, you contributed an article about September 2020 being the warmest September on record. So, can you tell our listeners more about this, what it means? And I seem to recall from our extreme weather event shows last year that seemingly every year for the last few has been breaking these quote, most or warmest records. What's with all of this? <laughs>
2: Well, that what's happening is the, uh, the the numbers you're referring to are global averages. So that's, if you imagine if you had a thermometer on every square inch of the planet, and of course we don't have that many, but we okay. use the data that we have to average out over the whole globe. So when you have something like global warming uh, and you're averaging over the whole globe, it tends to smooth out those daily ups and downs in weather. So if you're sitting in Dallas or Fort Worth, um, you may not experience this year as being one degree hotter than last year, because you know, it got cold in the winter, it got hot in the summer, and it's hard to parse out that little one degree. If you average across the whole globe, one degree is a huge amount, um, because that's that's just summing all those experiences all over the planet. So when you hear that it was the warmest September globally in 2020, uh, that means that the average global temperature was higher than any other September as far back as we can go, which is about 1880.
1: Makes yeah. me wonder how people can deny the climate's changing. <laughs> Bob, in regards to extreme heat, what are the effects and manifestations on other environmental issues? Well,
2: I think one of the most concerning interactions, and um, this particularly affects people, I think, in larger cities, is uh, air pollution. Um, Now, you can have a heat wave in in a pristine atmospheric environment, right? It's hot, but there's not pollution. So, you just have to worry about you know, heat exhaustion and things like that. When you add pollution, and typically you have extra pollution when you have a heat wave going on. It's ironic, but uh, you may you may know that in the summertime you often have, you hear about the ozone alert, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because you have stagnant air sitting over a city. So A, that's, that's uh, a, a setup that tends to allow heat to build, but it also allows the pollutants to kind of build up within the air mass. So those often go hand in hand. And they're both dangerous for human health. Um, they found that many deaths they used to think were caused by heat are actually uh, respiratory illnesses. Uh, people that inhale uh, too much uh, particulate matter uh, or ozone, those things that uh, irritate the lungs and bronchial areas. Mm-hmm. So especially people with respiratory ailments uh, often are, are, are sicker during um, heat waves. Uh, even cardiovascular. Um, can happen. You know, people can have strokes and heart attacks more often when it's uh, extremely hot. And again, that's typically because of pollution. So air, I think the, the intersection between air pollution and heat is really, really important.
1: Something else that is just now crossing my mind right this moment, it may be a little far-fetched, but you're the one I think I can ask, and that is I know that heat does something negative or exacerbates plastic pollution. So does extreme heat have any effect on plastic pollution. I know that personally many times I'll leave my big cartons, my stacks of water that I'm buying from the store, bringing home to drink my bottles. If I leave it in the car, I've always heard that you shouldn't leave it in the car. Something bad happens, especially in the summertime.
2: Yes, and I'm not an expert on this, but I, I have the impression that uh, hotter temperatures do facilitate the breakdown of the plastics uh, within plastic water bottles. So probably the less of that, the better, but, exactly, um, you know, it's, it's like uh, better, you know, better safe and, uh, you know, the less plastic one injects, certainly the better. Yeah.
1: yeah. We've been warned about that. Can you share a little insight with us into the Walter or Roberts weather trail? I came across that when I was doing some of my research for the show and it's supposed to be the first weather oriented nature trail in North America. Tell us about that.
2: Oh, I'd be delighted to. It's a project dear to my heart. Um, Back in 1996, I went to a conference in um, Europe on uh, popular oceanographic and meteorological education. So basically uh, bringing weather to students, to the public at large. And there was a, a person there who had created a weather trail in Switzerland. And basically you have different stops along this path that's a couple miles long couple of kilometers there, mm-hmm. and at each stop you have a sign explaining the weather you might see in that direction. And so we replicated this in Boulder at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, which is open year-round. You can just go behind the building and hike it. And we have a sign pointing north and explains the cold fronts you sometimes see coming in. Uh, looking toward Denver, it talks about the brown cloud that has gotten better but it used to be really bad. Uh, looking to the west, we talk about snow and high winds. And so you get to enjoy this uh, really pleasant trail Sometimes you see some wildlife. There's uh, occasionally been um, coyotes and such, and even once in a while a bear. (laughs) So uh, anyway, it's a a great thing to do. It's free, and uh, I encourage everyone who's who's in the Denver-Boulder area to uh, check it out. So people
1: actually get to see some or some semblance of some of these weather states from the trail?
2: Yes, that was my hope in working with the designers to conceptualize it, that at least there's one object out of these 10 or so signs that will jibe with whatever's happening at that moment.
1: And Boulder's interesting. I remember one of my visits to Colorado Springs, and we were in a class, and the folks were saying, "Oh, it's going to snow tomorrow." I'm like, "But it's sun shining outside." Oh. And like, How do you know? And they said because the cloud was down over Pikes Peak. I still didn't believe them. Yeah. When I got up the next morning, it was snowing.
2: We we actually went from 100 degrees right before Labor Day to 30 degrees in snow the day after Labor <laughs> Day, uh, two days after, and that that happened this year, and that's even for us, that was crazy.
1: Yeah. Extreme weather events. Last thing, and we have to go, and you have one half minute. To tell us, though, our listeners, how can ordinary people in their everyday lives, what can they do to help drive solutions to extreme weather events?
2: Well, certainly for heat, I would say plant a tree. You know, trees are wonderful in many ways. And for extreme weather in general, related to climate change, I would say, uh, try to reduce your carbon footprint. And, and, uh, uh, agitate, you know, write to uh, your local governments or um, companies and encourage them to reduce our collective carbon footprint. Uh, that's the only way we're going to get there.
1: But it's those little steps that make a difference. Thank you so much. We have been with Bob Henson, who has made us much smarter about extreme heat. Bob is a meteorologist and weather and climate change writer. Thank you so much. We look forward to having you again on our show.
2: Uh, thanks, Brittany. My pleasure. Stay cool.
1: I will do that. (laughs) Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To Today's show on extreme weather events, how they affect your health and wellness, talking specifically about extreme heat. Now, extreme heat events can be dangerous to health. They can even be fatal. These events result in increased hospital admissions for heat-related illnesses, as well as cardiovascular and respiratory disorders, and many, many other issues and conditions. As extreme heat events become more common, more severe, and longer lasting, scientists expect to see an increase in deaths and illnesses from heat, particularly among our most vulnerable populations, such as children, the elderly, economically disadvantaged. They say we all need to take actions that make our communities less vulnerable to climate change impacts like extreme heat conditions that are already well in progress. Many communities have programs already to address climate sensitive health issues. And when it comes to managing the health threats associated with extreme heat, there are a number of approaches that are proven to work well. And here today, to help us look at this from a health perspective, is Dr. Lalita Suwapanevi. And I'm going to call you Lalita, if I might. Lalita is an assistant professor in the General Internal Medicine Department at the University of Minnesota Medical School with a public health degree from John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She currently practices and teaches hospital medicine at... The M Health Fairview University of Minnesota Medical Center. She was one of the frontline volunteer physicians in the state's first COVID-19 hospital in Minnesota. Lalita's area of interest is the impact of climate change on health, and she is a member of Health Professionals for a Healthy Climate. Lalita serves on local and state agencies, me boards as a health expert. Welcome, Lolita. Thank you so much for being with us, and did I get all of that right? Thank you so much, Bernice. Yes, thank you for having me. We want to start off, Lolita, if you could just break down for our listeners, what are the health burdens created by heat or extreme heat, both nationally and globally? And when I say break down, tell us what those burdens are and why they happen.
0: Yeah, Um, So we've uh, heard that, you know, extreme heat events are going to become more frequent and intense and the number of extreme heat days is increasing. Um, Heat is one of the most direct impacts of climate change on health. Now there are several ways of looking at the impact of heat on health. For example, you had mentioned how older people are more vulnerable, right? So if you look at people over 65, uh, data from Lancet Countdown on Climate and Health shows that when you compare it to people uh, who were exposed to extreme heat between 1985 to 2000, in the US now in 2018, 3 million more people were impacted. Similarly, worldwide, when you look at it, 220 million more people were impacted. Uh, This shows you that as uh, time progresses, more people are being uh, exposed to extreme heat. Uh, Now, another way of looking at this impact um, is a decline in our labor capacity. So for example, between 2008 and 2018, we've lost around 1.1 billion work hours. So, you know, that's a big number. So, that's like 500,000 full time workers were idle for an entire year. Um, So especially postal workers, construction workers, farmers, especially migrant workers are impacted more. Um, You know, NRDC um, just came out with a report of on the front lines, climate change threatens the health of America's workers. And they put out some more uh, details on how this is happening. Um, Similarly, um, our military is also facing these impacts. Uh, There was a 60 percent increase in heat related illness from 2008 to 20. 2018 uh, from a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Oh my, it's a big impact.
1: In terms of health cost, are there any stats or metrics out there?
0: So this is a very uh, important question uh, because, you know, we have Heat, as we just heard, is um, manifest in many different ways, and it's not just uh, a hospitalization. Uh, there's lots of work hours, there's lots of, uh, there's impacts that w- we wouldn't typically count as extreme heat. And so the uh, number is, um, you know, um, hard to determine, but there is a, a growing awareness that this does impact um, our economy.
1: You mentioned there's impacts that we would not typically attribute to extreme heat. What would be some of those?
0: Right, so uh, I'm a internist and I practice hospital medicine, so um, I in my practice, you know, uh, when, uh, when people typically think of heat and health, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a heat stroke, right? But in my practice, what I've seen is that heat can affect our health in many different ways. Uh, for example, I've had patients with pre-existing conditions that got worse by exposure to heat. Uh, you know, when I was training in Cleveland, I had a young gentleman with uh, sickle cell disease who was admitted to the hospital uh, with the flare-up of sickle cell disease because he was, playing basketball on a hot day outside and was dehydrated Um, and so that caused his crisis and he was in excruciating pain and he had to be hospitalized for over three days. When we think of extreme heat, we really do need to expand how um, it can affect your health. So for the people listening, I would recommend that you discuss with your healthcare provider about how you can protect your health and the health of your family from heat. And for health providers, like we already mentioned, I think it's essential not just to protect, you know, the health of your patients, but also to document the burden of heat in the community so that our public health departments can take better measures to protect us. Fascinating. In the past, Lalita, you have talked about,
1: air quality and extreme heat, Mm -hmm. Um, but we haven't really delved into that connection, so let's talk about that now. How do they intersect? I know Bob in our previous segment mentioned it as well, but can Mm -hmm. you talk about it some more, perhaps from the health perspective as well?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think as uh, Bob had mentioned, on an extremely hot day, Polluted air stagnates, Um, and we have a couple of pollutants that react with each other to form that bad ozone, the ground-level ozone that can trigger asthma attacks. Um, And we see that, you know, um, more calls for ambulances for respiratory issues um, happen on hot days. Now, um, you know, I wanted to share the story of another patient that I took care of um here in Minneapolis um in this past year when we had a, a hot stretch. Um so my patient um had she was 40. She had really bad asthma. Um, you know, she was a smoker. She lived downtown, close to the highway, uh, so exposure to air pollution. Um, she um, was not able to fill her inhalers for about a month uh, because of financial reasons, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so she came in with a very severe asthma attack and uh, admitted to the hospital. But her attack was so bad, she even ended up having a heart attack from that. Uh, So she was seen by a cardiologist, she had an angiogram, she had, you know, uh, five new medicines that I started her on, and I sent her back to that same home environment, which in part at least contributed uh, to her condition. Um, You know, so I think we need to uh, understand uh, the effects of how heat and air pollution interplay because as we've already mentioned, our climate has already heated up by, you know, one Uh, degrees centigrade. And those effects are here to stay. So we know we're going to see more extreme heat days. So this is even more reason for us to drastically start cutting down on fossil fuel use because transitioning will not only help limit the damage to our climate, but also help provide immediate health benefits.
1: Exactly. And I have to think that the statistics on illnesses and deaths and issues related to extreme heat and air pollution can get muddled
0: Absolutely.
1: because they are drivers and they are well interconnected. I want to go back and kind of summarize it, make sure people know. Let's talk about perhaps the top three illnesses in terms of prevalence and perhaps morbidity or conditions that are
0: caused by extreme heat. That is a really good question, and I, uh, I can give an educated guess here. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I think, as you had mentioned, definitely uh, heat strokes and heat-related illness, uh, and then you also have um, heart disease impacts mm-hmm. from that, and then respiratory impacts are um, on the top.
1: We want to talk about, after the break we'll get into it in more detail, and that is the intersection of heat and extreme heat. With COVID, because we are seeing that it, it really does impact a lot of things, and I have to think that part of the danger of it all is that it could impact some things that you don't even know are going on. We're going to be right back on the other side of the break with again Dr. Lolita Surapuneni, who will be with us shortly. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX. The world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV. Our other sponsors are North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951. They are the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening, plant education, concierge services, and classes. And we're told the best Christmas trees in North Texas. Check them out at NHG.com. Our sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body, specializing in periodontics. Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at LynnDentalCare.com. Our other sponsors, Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority, or the DFW Metroplex and North Texas Communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found at all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back talking about extreme heat as a component of our topic for November, dealing with extreme weather events. And we are back with Dr. Lalita Surapanini from the University of Minnesota. Thank you again for being with us. As we mentioned right before the break, we want to talk now about how extreme heat intersects with the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Yeah, thank you for that. So, you know, I, as a provider caring for COVID-19 patients, and then outside of the hospital, I work on climate and health uh, advocacy. So, you know, I see a lot of intersections um, between uh, the two. Uh, For example, um, you know, we've seen that uh, COVID-19 is impacting communities disproportionately. We've seen health disparities, right? And we also know that climate change, we always hear, uh, it will impact the vulnerable um, and not everyone shares those burdens equally. And so um, there is what we call a vulnerability framework that we use um, in uh, public health to try and understand these impacts. Uh, There's three uh, parts to it, which is um, uh, exposure, sensitivity, and adaptive capacity. Exposure is basically, you know, do you have a high or low exposure to the particular event, right? Adaptive capacity is how do you protect yourself from it. And sensitivity is like what's innate to you, whether that's your age or your preexisting condition, that makes it more likely that you're going to fall prey to these health impacts. Interesting. And Yeah. And so when you think about it in that framework, a lot of these uh, concerns of how, you know, low-income communities, communities of color are impacted more will come um, into a better focus. Yes. Uh, Now, when we see the interplay of COVID and extreme heat, I think in our previous segment with Bob, we had mentioned that uh, cities are now coming up with uh, designated cooling centers, right? Uh, But here in Minneapolis, for example, with the shutdown, um, our county libraries and the Skyway uh, downtown, uh, which are air-conditioned facilities, they have been shut down. And so people, um, especially those experiencing homelessness, so again, most vulnerable, are not going to have... The adaptive capacity they need. Um, You know, and we've seen across the country uh, wildfires and hurricanes are prompting mass evacuations. And we know social distancing is going to be a challenge when people have to shelter together. Um, We do have a burden now of compounding disasters, right? So we have climate change that's Going to be a chronic disaster. Unfortunately, over six months into the pandemic, this is turning into another um, chronic disaster with in cases. So when you have these overlapping crises, that adds a huge amount of stress to our health, but also to our healthcare infrastructure um, and you know the health and well-being of healthcare providers.
1: I remember early on in the COVID-19 pandemic they told us that cold weather had an exacerbating effect on COVID. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also saw an uptick towards the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. So what's happening with all of that?
0: I've said this to my patients so many times. It's a novel coronavirus. Yes. And there's so much that we don't know about it, right? But I do think that, um, you know, with uh, there were some of the pre- – that we've made with the cold weather had come from our experience with prior uh, viral outbreaks, and um, you know, uh, the, some of the decrease in social distancing um, and, and our shutdown uh, restrictions also have played an impact in how uh, cases are playing out. Uh, so, again, like I don't, I'm not an expert on COVID. I think at this point, there would yeah. be educated guesses.
1: Lalita, though, are there any other perhaps unexpected or ancillary health or wellness impacts of extreme heat that we may not have mentioned or that people don't tend to think about?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we did talk uh, quite a bit about the impacts of extreme heat, but there are impacts of climate change that we typically don't think about. And uh, one of those kind of emerging areas is an effect of climate change on our mental health. Um, You know, we all have heard of, you know, how wildfires impact us, hurricanes, extreme heat, air pollution, all of these things, right? But uh, there is a uh, rise in anxiety and depression uh, and PTSD sometimes after uh, these extreme events, as we've seen with, you know, Hurricane Maria um, or after Hurricane Katrina, um, we also uh, see that there is um, impact, like we said, of extreme heat on your mental health. Um, and then when people lose their livelihoods, for example, after the Midwest floods in 2019, uh, you know, we saw that farmers' mental health was being impacted um, and, you know, I grew up in India, South India, and so, unfortunately, I grew up with farmer suicides when there was an um, extreme drought. So, there is definitely um, mental health impacts there. And I think something that's um, being uh, recognized more now is a phenomenon called solastalgia. So, that word means that it's a sense of loss that we experience, uh, uh, when the place we call home uh, no longer resembles what we know to be our home. You know, so um, there, we um, are part of our uh, environment. We're, you know, a very integral part of our Earth. Um, and so we, let's say in Minnesota, for example, um, if people grew up with cold winters and um, we no longer have... A, snow, uh, you know, winter recreation becomes an issue, um, or um, we are seeing some of these impacts from uh, Native American communities in um, Alaska, for example, where a lot of culture um, and, you know, history is tied into the way you relate to the natural world. Um, so I think the mental health impacts of the destruction we're causing to our environment is real. So
1: nostalgia. right. That's interesting. It's also interesting because in many of our shows over the year, many of our guests do mention mental health as an under-recognized or under-talked about aspect of all of this. And again, I, I think it's being exacerbated during COVID. Now, Lalitha, tell me about how are you seeing or what do you see as the role of health and medical professionals in this whole fight against climate change, as well as climate change's offspring of extreme heat?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, I think health professionals recognize uh, that climate change and the impact on health are gonna be one of the biggest factors um, on public health in the 21st century. Um, And so, you know, I, I like to think of action in kind of three levels, so on an individual level, an institutional level, and a policy level. Uh, Right, So on an individual level, I think it's very essential that uh, health providers counsel our patients about how to protect themselves from the impacts of climate change. So we need our clinicians to be climate aware. Um, So at the University of Minnesota, we're teaching our medical students in an interprofessional manner um, on the health impacts. Uh, One of my mentors, Dr. Teddy Potter, helped develop a curriculum on climate and health that is now being used internationally. Um, now, at an institutional level, we know that um, healthcare industry contributes to 10% of our country's annual greenhouse gas emissions, more than all of emissions from, uh, let's say, Nigeria. Uh, so you may um, have seen in the news that NHS um, in the UK just announced a plan for zero carbon. Uh, similarly, at you know our hospital, uh, we have a climate health action program uh, trying to cut down the carbon footprint of our hospital, and turns out that many sustainable healthcare practices actually save the hospitals money. So we have what we call it. Yeah, triple bottom line is what we call it. It's a people, planet, and profit. And I think finally, we health professionals also understand that we can no longer just work in hospitals and clinics. We have to bring the science out of the ivory tower to the public, to our lawmakers, to help develop science-based climate policy. One last thing really quickly, Mm -hmm. and that is What can be your advice to
1: ordinary people in their everyday lives to help drive solutions?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, people, communities do have the solutions. You know how they say, think global, act local. Uh, Yes, you need scientific expertise, but you also need that lived experience to figure out what solutions are best for your community. So I would encourage listeners to think about, you know, what systems are you a part of? And how can you invoke the collective power of your community into action, right? So we know climate change impacts every aspect of our lives, so we need everyone to participate in solutions that are interdisciplinary. This is not just for the scientists to solve, you know. So a couple of examples like could be even if you're a student, um, and maybe you could uh, talk to your classmates, uh, talk to your school, and have an electric bus instead of a diesel bus, Right. Uh, In your neighborhood, you could have a program to check on elderly people who live alone uh, so that during heat waves, there's someone checking on them. You know, um, think of what expertise you bring to the table um, and, you know, um, what systems are you a part of because the actions we take today will impact the health of generations to come. Thank you. Great information. Thank you so much. We've
1: been with Dr. Lalita Surapaneni with the University of Minnesota Medical Center, and we really appreciate you enlightening us today. We hope to have you back again in the future. And thank you listeners for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is Bernice Butler, Thank you. And join us again next week for more on extreme weather events. And listen to any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get yours.